Hello, friends, and welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's, the weekly podcast where we take a deep dive into the scripture text for this Sunday and give you the chance to learn God's story that you can live, love, and lead a life following Jesus. I'm Pastor Melissa, and I am so glad to be with you on this Lenten journey this year, exploring deep into our scripture texts each week as we look at love on purpose through Jesus' story. This week, we move out of the Gospel of Mark and into the Gospel of John. Now, this is a big shift. John is the oddball gospel of our four. While Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are known as our synoptic gospels, share a lot of material, share a lot of stories, John's writer is actually writing decades after the others for a very different community of Jesus followers. And so as a result, the way this writer chooses to tell the story becomes dramatically different. And we see clearly that distinction in the passage that we are going to read today. Now, this passage is found in other Gospels, but the details are a little bit different. And the timeline in which we find this story being placed in Jesus' timeline um, is not in the same order. So we're going to start this week by diving in and going ahead and reading our passage for the week. So we're in John chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 13 through 22. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple those who were selling cattle, sheep, and doves, as well as those involved in exchanging currency sitting there. He made a whip from ropes and chased them all out of the temple, including the cattle and the sheep. He scattered the coins and overturned the tables of those who exchanged currency, and he said to the dove sellers, get these things out of here, Don't make my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it is written, Passion for your house consumes me. Then the Jewish leaders asked him, By what authority are you doing these things? What miraculous sign will you show us? And Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jewish leaders replied, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? That the temple Jesus was talking about was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now this is that infamous scene where Jesus goes into the temple and just lets loose on people. It's one you probably either love or hate. Um, And either way, it's one that no matter which gospel we find it in, it is a huge message about what Jesus has come to do. And the first thing we have to notice here in John's gospel is where this story is located. It is in John chapter 2. That's really early especially if we have read the other gospel accounts, because in the synoptic accounts, this event happens towards the end of Jesus' ministry as he gets closer to the cross. And in John, it happens right at the very beginning. Mark, for example, as we saw a few weeks ago, puts the beginning of Jesus' ministry coming out of his baptism and his time in the wilderness. John, on the other hand, makes the beginning of Jesus' ministry the wedding at Cana, where he turns water into wine at the request of his mother, Mary. That is the story that immediately precedes what we just read. It's a different turn, right? But like Mark, John has an agenda. 
in how they are writing this gospel. John's writer is unconcerned with the historical accuracy or order of events. This is not a controversy situation. John's not trying to give a more accurate account of historical events. This writer has a theological purpose in how they are choosing to tell the Jesus story. John begins Jesus' ministry with a miracle that uses water that would have been used for purification rites and then demonstrates with it abundance. And then we get the story here of the temple cleansing. And then, which we'll look at next week, it's followed with the story of Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night and struggling to understand what it means to be born again, born from above. And so these first these first few stories, the first pair, give a view of the parallel truths of the kingdom of God, that it's one of abundance, but also of challenge to the power structures of the day. And all three stories imply that because of Jesus' arrival, there are going to be some changes that have to happen in the current religious systems of the day. By placing this particular story early in Jesus' ministry, the gospel also sets the stage for the conflict with temple authorities that will then escalate as we go throughout the gospel, leading to his crucifixion as a political threat. It situates, situates conflict at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And in some ways, like Mark, we see from the very beginning the inevitability of the cross. Now, if we get into the details of this text itself, we find ourselves at the, peace, at the feast of the Passover, the first of three in John's gospel. And this is when many people would have traveled there from far distances for this celebration. Now, in order for them to participate in Passover events, they would have needed animals for sacrifice, and it was prohibitive to travel with animals a far distance. So most people um, needed people to, to then sell those to them, and so there were people who took that, that opportunity and sold what people needed, and that had begun to happen right there in the temple itself. Proximity, pretty good business model, right? In addition, currency exchange, money changers, were needed as the temple tax couldn't be paid in Greek or Roman coinage because of the images of the emperor's head on those coins, graven images. So those also had to be changed into the legal Tyrian currency in Jerusalem. Now, we can critique the scene all we want, but in order for temple worship to proceed and for anyone to participate, these merchants were necessary. But as we see, Jesus has a strong response to the scene itself. This is the gospel where we even get the detail that he makes a whip to use in chasing everyone out of the temple. And often we find surface level criticism to be made of those who were selling in the temple. Because we do know that many employed extortionist practices. It wasn't always an above board, well-meaning, altruistic market. And yet, we can also be realistic that one person making a scene and shutting down business for one day is absolutely not going to change anything about the fact that they're all going to be back to their normal business the next day. Jesus' actions don't really change anything about what's happening here. And sure, Jesus is certainly upset with the folks who are taking advantage of the religious faithful who have made pilgrimage. But even more so, and especially in John's gospel, we see that he's upset with the system 
that has been set up in which this kind of commerce is not only welcome, but essential. Jesus' ultimate target is the religious authorities here. Jesus' challenge is one that is about the values of his kingdom. As one commentator puts it, where others see a functional, sustaining economy at the Jerusalem temple with sacrificial cattle, sheep, and doves for sale, Jesus sees a meaning crisis and does something about it. As St. Luke's, we would probably say that the temple seems to have um, uh, gone away from its core values, if you will. Now, Jesus isn't getting into the weeds of how to manage this system better. He is actually calling for a dismantling of the entire system with his protest. At the core of this critique is the premise that maybe the practices of the temple need to change, but maybe even more, he may be challenging the idea that the temple is necessary at all. Now, this makes even more sense with the knowledge that John's gospel is written after the destruction of the second temple in 70 CE. So those who might have felt the center of faith uh, being the temple is lost, they're, they're a little unsure of what faith is supposed to look like now, they might find comfort in this scene and especially what's coming next, which is Jesus' dialogue with those very authorities whose systems have been challenged. Now, when he is challenged, let's keep in mind the scene that would have actually just taken place. Jesus, a complete outsider to the power structure of the temple, issues a challenge to the authority of the temple that quite literally shakes its foundations. Jesus throws the mechanics of temple worship into chaos, disrupting the temple system during one of the most significant feasts of the year so that neither sacrifices nor tithes could be offered that day. This is like coming and making a scene in the narthex on Christmas Eve. It's no wonder that the Jews who were gathered at the temple asked for a sign to warrant his actions. As far as they knew, Jesus was just some guy, just as they were. And so he, who was he? Who was his authority to come and derail their entire worship? So while we see a challenge to Jesus' authority as dramatic, because we know who Jesus is, we, we have a pre-existing understanding of that, these leaders saw someone come in and threaten and ransack their church, basically. It's fair for them to ask some questions. And they challenge not just his actions, but they ask for a sign, something to clarify why he believes he has the authority to criticize, much less cleanse, as we call it, the temple courts. Now, we're going to see this a few times in John's gospel. John loves plays on words. Double meanings of words show up again and again with Jesus clearly speaking one meaning, but the hearers in the story interpreting the other. And we get that here in this passage. As we know that when Jesus names that he will rebuild the temple, he's talking about himself. He's talking about the resurrection. We are post-resurrection readers. This is a post-resurrection gospel. We know what the end of the story is. Because he is saying that he himself is the temple. Now, of course, the Jewish authorities here are a more literal, literal construction project. And the writer of John wants us to see that, that those who are currently in charge of religious systems do not get it. They don't understand. One article put it this way, The very son of the living God was standing right in front of these people, but they were far more impressed with brick and mortar than they were with flesh and blood. 
Even if they had understood the reference to his own body, though, you kind of get the feeling they would have been unbelieving and unimpressed by that claim as well. Now, I would be remiss here if I didn't name, though, um, some of the anti-Semitic interpretations that have been driven by unfaithful readings of John's gospel. Now, this here, this is not a Judaism versus Christianity conversation, although it can seem a little bit like that on the surface. Jesus isn't actually against Judaism, per se. He himself is a Jew. John presents Jesus as an observant Jewish male. He has traveled to Jerusalem at the pilgrimage feast, and he does it again. Jesus' challenge to the authority of the dominant religious institution is actually in line with, with the Jewish faith as well, with the institutional challenge that we get in the Jewish prophets like Amos and Jeremiah. Jesus challenges a religious system that is so embedded in its own rules and practices that it's no longer open to a fresh revelation from God. A temptation that, we have to be honest, exists for contemporary Christianity as well. This isn't about the truth or not of a religious belief structure. This is about the systems that become uh, oppressive as they are built around that set of beliefs. John wants to emphasize this is that new revelation from God. Something new is happening as 114, uh, John 114 says, a new era of, of salvation has dawned and God's people must recognize that the word has become flesh and is now dwelling among them. It's now tabernacling among them. Our lesson for this week of Lent is to see through Jesus' example that love rumbles. Now, that may be a new term for some of you, but it's been popularized by Brene Brown as a term for a willingness to have the hard conversations and to lean in when there's a difficult issue to address rather than running away. Here's how she puts it. She says, let's have a real conversation even if it's tough. It becomes a serious intention setter and a behavioral cue or reminder to talk about rumbling. A rumble is a discussion conversation or meeting defined by a commitment to lean into vulnerability, to stay curious and generous, to stick with the messy middle of problem identification and solving, to take a break and circle back when necessary, to be fearless in owning our parts, and to listen with the same passion in which we want to be heard. More than anything else, when someone says, let's rumble, it cues me to show up with an open heart and mind so that we can serve the work and each other, not our egos. Hmm? Sometimes this is a story that church leaders will avoid because it's behavior that we wouldn't condone, right? It's not an example exactly that we want our kids to follow. And yet we have to be careful that we don't whitewash Jesus, who, while certainly pacifistic, is not shy to engage in conflict when there is a kingdom issue at hand. John puts this story at the beginning of the gospel alongside the water to wine story because that is the whole picture of the kingdom, overflowing abundance, joy, and celebration, and unafraid courage to stand up against oppression and injustice. In our membership vows as United Methodists, we commit to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. And I will say whenever I teach that to confirmation classes and in our Wesleyan Way class, I always emphasize that that phrase, whatever forms they present themselves, includes when the church gets it wrong 
too. That we have to be even more vigilant that the institution of church doesn't become part of the oppressive systems of the world. One commentator puts it this way, Christian faith communities must be willing to ask where and when the status quo of religious practices and institutions has been absolutized and therefore closed to the possibility of reformation, change, and renewal. The great danger is that the contemporary church, like the leaders of the religious establishment in the Gospel of John, will fall into the trap of equating the authority of its own institutions with the presence of God. All religious institutional embeddedness, whether in the form of temple worship, unjust social systems, or repressive religious practices, is challenged by the revelation of God in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus showed love that day in the temple. He stepped into a space where he did truly have authority, and he called out injustice. But here's the thing. Part of rumbling is staying in the conversation, not calling out others' injustices and then walking away. Jesus engaged in the conversation with the religious authorities, and he also offered an alternative solution, naming himself and his body as the temple, even if they didn't understand his meaning. Jesus didn't walk away. He stayed. We see this at the beginning of the gospel because we see him throughout the gospel again and again choosing to have hard conversations, whether it's with Nicodemus at night or the woman at the well. Jesus continues to choose to rumble. He chooses relationship as the way he gets his message across. So I wonder, what hard conversations do you tend to lean away from? Where do you need to seek more often to lean in? And Lent is the perfect season to rumble in love and maybe first with yourself. 